Now, let's get to the good stuff. Let's get to a Stuart story. <laughs> Stuart and I had only been married for three or four years, and we had bought a small RV called a casita. And the casita is only like 15, 17 feet long, so it was an easy trailer to tow. And we had gone to Fredericksburg, and on the way back from Fredericksburg, the year is 2003, and we go through Stephenville coming back home. And when we go through Stephenville, from a distance, we see this. And you can put the first picture up there. We see this. It's the Hard Eight Barbecue. They had just opened. Now, my husband's a carnivore. He, he's never met a meat yet he didn't like. And that, in, that includes exotic meat like alligator and other such things. And so he looked at me with wide, happy eyes and said, can we please stop here for lunch? And I said, absolutely. So this was a barbecue place like neither of us had ever been to at that point. So we get in line, and instead of like going to a front to order, they have, and you can go on to the second picture now, they have all the meat laid out. And as you are walking through the line, you walk past all this meat. Now, my husband lost control. <laughs> and he stacked, and you can go on with the third one, he stacked his plate to where it looks something like this. And I'm looking at that plate, and I'm thinking, there is no way my husband's going to be able to eat all of that meat. Now, not only is my husband a carnivore, my husband loves a good deal. And... <laughs> If I can find a coupon or some sort of discount, there is no restaurant he's not willing to go to if he's got a coupon or there's a discount in mind. Now, I know some of you are just like that, and that's wonderful. So we go through the line, and they weigh his meat out. It was, and this is 2003, this is almost 20 years ago, it was over $30 for just his. <laughs> And he looked at me and he said, I think my eyes may have been just a little bit bigger than my stomach. Needless to say, we were eating leftover barbecue for quite some time and it was all still delicious. Now, I tell that story because it actually has a point of application for the message this morning. I want to talk with you about prayer. And when talking about a subject as enormous, as immense as prayer, I really feel like Stuart must have felt staring at all that meat at the heart eight. There's a Chinese proverb that says, God, you are such a big ocean and I am such a small ship. When it comes to the subject of prayer, that is exactly how I feel. It is overwhelming, it is immense, it is far larger, far deeper, far more extensive than anything that I could ever cover in a lifetime, much less the time that I have with you this morning. So what I wanted to do this morning is take just a small section, a small idea of prayer and present it to you. I know that I'm speaking to the right audience this morning when I say there's a storm coming. Not just to us as a nation, there's a storm coming globally. Never has there been so much immorality and amorality. Never has there been a time when that which is wrong is celebrated as being right, and that which is right and pure and true before Jesus has been treated as though it were wrong in some way. And this is just the beginning. 
the greatest weapon that we have, the greatest resource that we have as followers of Jesus Christ is prayer. And the time to learn to pray, the time to commit and dedicate yourself to prayer isn't in the middle of the storm. The time to learn how to pray and to dedicate yourself to prayer is before the storm ever even gets here. Now, I will say this, if you refuse and reject the idea of committing yourself to prayer now, it's never too late, and the middle of the storm, it's still good. But I would rather be prepared going into the storm as opposed to finding myself tossed to and fro by the storm for an unknown amount of time before I catch the clue. So this morning, I want us to look at the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. This is often called the Lord's Prayer, but in all honesty, this really isn't the Lord's Prayer. This is the disciples' prayer. This is the prayer he taught his disciples to pray. I'm gonna be looking at it from Matthew chapter six, verses five through 13, but it's in Luke 11 that we're told, where the same situation is repeated, that we're told that the disciples of Jesus came to him and said, Lord, teach us how to pray. I wanna stop with that for just a moment, and I want you to think with me about that. You don't ask someone to teach you how to do something unless you know that they're really efficient at it, unless you know that they are really good at it. For four years of my life, I lived with Bobby and Cindy De La Garza. Some of you may remember Bobby and Cindy. They live in Burleson now, or in Cleburne, and Cindy is an outstanding Mexican cook. Anyone who has ever eaten her food, you know, I do not lie, she is a fantastic Mexican cook. That woman taught me how to cook Mexican. I learned from someone who knew what they were doing. When I knew that God had called me to preach, I didn't look to people that were not effective preachers. I looked toward people that I knew could bring the word and bring it powerfully and effectively. When we want someone to teach us something, we do not look to someone who can barely do it, someone who doesn't know how to do it, someone who's trying to figure it out themselves. When we want to learn how to do something, we go to someone who's doing it right. And that's what the disciples did. They went to Jesus and they said to Jesus, Lord, teach us how to pray. Now, there are two subjects that if you start talking about one of these two subjects, you can end the conversation quickly. If you start talking about money, that will end the conversation quickly. If you're talking about prayer, that can end the conversation quickly. Because there's something about prayer that when we hear someone teach on prayer or someone begins to speak on prayer, that immediately we start feeling like, oh, she's going to beat me up this morning because I know that whatever it is I'm doing, it's not enough and it's not right and it's not this and it's not that. This is not that kind of message. So take a breath because prayer is one of the, again, most powerful exercises that any of us could involve ourselves in. Jesus presents prayer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus presents prayer not as in the context of if you pray, but when you pray. It is expected that every son, every daughter of the Most High God will engage in prayer. Now, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 13, let's just read this, and if it's projected uh, behind me, you guys read along with me, starting in verse 13. I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 5. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, 
for they loved to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, where they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Pray then in this way. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Lord Jesus, it is so easy just to move from that prayer to talking to you. I'm asking this morning that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would wake us up, that Lord Jesus, we would become increasingly aware that you are God with us. And not only can we talk to you, you long for that intimate conversation between us and you. So Father, I am asking for the honor and the glory of Jesus' name, that our ears be open to hear your word, and that, Father, we become more than just hearers, but that we become doers of your word. For it is in your great name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Before Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he tells them how not to do it. These are really two of the only don't do it like this that you'll find in Scripture. He says that the Gentiles have meaningless repetition, Meaning that the Gentiles, those people who are outside the commonwealth of Israel, those individuals who do not know who God is, that they think that they will be heard because they just repeat themselves over and over and over again. The Gentiles need to be heard. And then he goes on to say, the hypocrites, when they pray, they station themselves intentionally in places where they can be seen. So the hypocrites want to be seen and the Gentiles want to be heard. Now, there is nothing wrong with being seen when you pray. And there's nothing wrong with being heard when you pray as long as that is not your motivating factor. So these people are being motivated solely by being seen or by being heard. And then Jesus goes on in his instructions and he says, go to a private place. Go to a place that has an audience of one. It has become increasingly popular in our evangelical Christian culture to have what's called a prayer room or a war room. Now, I love the idea, but to quite be honest with you, more often than not, I find myself finding that solitude place in my car. It is the one place that my dogs can't get to me. And by the way, my dogs think that I am their 24-7 maid service. I open and close the door 20 times a day for them. 
And then always, when I decide I want to pray, the phone goes off, this goes off, Stuart suddenly is in a crisis, the neighbor knocks on the door, something always happens. But in my car, I'm alone. And I find that my car serves quite well as a prayer closet. But you get the idea. He's encouraging his disciples that when they pray to go into that private place where there is just the audience of one, the Heavenly Father. Now, there's a book that if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. It's by Richard Foster, and the title of the book is Prayer, Finding the Heart's True Home. In this book, he offers at least 21 different types of prayer that's found throughout Scripture. Now, there's not just those 21 types of prayer. There's more than that, but he focuses on just those 21 types of prayer. There's prayers of confession, prayers of desperation, prayers of a crisis, prayers of intercession. There's all kinds of prayers, and none of them are wrong. They are all right and good and I know this morning from where I sit to up here there was a prayer of desperation that took place Jesus help help me to communicate your word and I know there are a lot of young parents in this place today and I know you know what it's like to pray prayers of desperation God put that child to sleep so I can close my eyes for a few minutes there's absolutely nothing wrong with any of these prayers But the example of prayer that Jesus gives to us in Matthew chapter 6 is what I call a common prayer. This is the standard prayer for those who are going to be disciples of the Lord Jesus. And he starts this prayer out with our. Now, honestly, I would probably feel more comfortable if it was my, but it's our, and it's in the plural. I think that this is intentional. I know it's intentional because I believe in the authority and the inspiration of scripture. The pluralization of this is intentional. It's there for a reason. I think number one, the plural reminds us that we are not alone. That when we pray to God, even though we do not see and even though we do not hear, there are millions of other voices joining with us as we move toward the throne for a variety of petitions, requests, and reasons. When we pray our, we are reminded that we join the church universal. And when I speak of the universal church, I'm speaking of every man, every woman, every child that has ever confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. This includes the church past, the church present, and should the Lord tarry, the church future. I just have to tell you this little bit of information. Ian Bounds, who has probably wrote, written more prolifically on prayer than just about anyone else, he said in one of his books on prayer, he said, our prayers will live longer than we do. We will die, but when we utter our prayers, they go before the throne of God, and there they live until the Father answers them. Some of you, your grandmother, your grandfather has been home with Jesus for many years, but just recently you've come to faith in Christ. And you remember that when you were a child, they prayed for you. Their prayers lived before the throne of God even after their funeral because their prayers didn't die. They lived before the throne. Church, if you believe that, And by evidence of the sound that I'm hearing, the amens and the yes, you do believe it. Think about that. 
We will pass away, but our prayers for our children, our grandchildren, the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, the culture that we're a part of, our prayers will live as long as God does. And that's forever. What more holy occupation could we spend our time in than prayer? Our, we are not alone. We join that great cloud of witnesses. We join the voices of those who will come even after we're gone and we make our appeal to the Father. The hour reminds us that we are not exclusive. We're a part of something that's much bigger than just our small understanding of both time and the kingdom of God. So the hour puts things in perspective. It's not about me, it's about him, and he's about us. And that's a concept that I think we have forgotten or that we've misunderstood. He says, our. And then he doesn't say, our almighty, powerful God who is king of kings and lord of lords. All of that is certainly true. But when he prays, he doesn't pray like that. He says, our father. There are over 28 prayers of the Lord Jesus that's recorded in the New Testament. Every one of those prayers, Jesus starts off with Father, except for one. And that's when he's on the cross and he cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Do you see a pattern here? When Jesus himself, when he prayed, he prayed to his Father. And he did that to model for us how we ought to pray. This masculine father this throws some people in our culture off but the masculine is intentional it might soothe some political and cultural feathers to allow father to be interchanged with mother but the fact remains Jesus refers to him as his father not as his mother and he purposely employs the masculine why does he do this let me give you some reasons why it's important to approach him as father I think that when we go to our Heavenly Father and refer to Him as such, it can unearth and reveal some daddy issues. And we need to be open to the healing power of Jesus in our lives with regard to those issues and those hurts and trauma that may have been caused by an earthly father. The title Father is given not to hurt us, but to begin to bring healing to our hearts and to our lives. Father is used to remind us that our earthly fathers will always fall short. In this, in this congregation, there are some of the most amazing earthly fathers that I have ever seen. I don't know of any dad in this congregation that does not love his children and his grandchildren and lay his life down almost daily in order to see them provided for and taken care of. But the greatest dad in the world is still going to fall short because of the brokenness of humanity. And I think even that might be intentional because if our earthly father met all of our needs and was that perfect, would we ever look toward a heavenly father? In many cultures, the father is the source and provider of the basic needs of life and the protector of the family. We go to our heavenly father because he is indeed the source and the provider of all of our basic needs and he is our protector and our defender. In the book of Hosea, 
when he's trying to describe the relationship that God wants with fallen Israel, he describes it in two relationships. The relationship of a husband to a wife, thereby the story of Hosea and Gomer. But deeper into the book, he goes even more intimate than that, and he says, as a father to a son, as a father to a child. He used husband to wife, father to son. The use of father is an invitation to an intimate, not casual, to an intimate relationship with your heavenly father. The one place that I can go and I can only be myself because he sees through all of my masks and all of my other stuff. The only place that I can go and pour out all the failures of my day of my life, my fears, my anxieties, my frustrations, I can pour them out and he will not use any of these things as a weapon against me. But he will love me and hold me and be with me until those things begin to subside. When I go to the throne in prayer, I'm not appealing to some stranger, I'm appealing to my father. Go to the next picture I have up there. When I think of this relationship of father and son, this is the image that comes to my mind. This is former President JFK with his son playing beneath his desk. This is the President of the United States and this is the Oval Office. Chances are in my lifetime, I will never get to play under any President's desk. I will probably not even be invited to sit in a chair in the Oval Office. But that little boy could go in and out of the Oval Office and play under his father's desk because that's his daddy. He's president to the rest of the world, but he is daddy to that little boy. If he as an earthly father knows how to love and be good to his child like that, how much more does your heavenly father invite you to come and play under his desk? How can we stay away from a God that loves us to such an extent? Jesus breaks the religious rules of his day and that religious rule put God in such a lofty place that no one could get to him. Now, that's what religious spirits do. They present a God that's so far off that no one can get to him until they jump through all the hoops and check all the boxes. It's an attempt at control and human elitism. But Jesus tears those ideas down and declares that any of his disciples, any of his disciples, the disciples who are getting it right, the disciples who are getting it wrong, the disciples who had a good week, the disciples who tripped all over themselves this week, that any disciple can cry out, Abba, Father. There was a father who had two sons. They were both prodigals. One just knew it and acted it out. The other one covered it up with religion. The son that we call the prodigal said, give me my inheritance, and he left the father's home, but he never left the father's love. At his most desperate moment, when he, a young Jewish boy, is in a pen with an unclean animal, pigs, and he looks at what the pigs are eating and says, I wish I could eat the food of the pigs. At that point, it says, and he looked up and came to his senses. 
I just have to go on a bunny trail here. We got some prodigals. Let them eat some pig food for just a moment. God's going to bring them to their senses. And they are going to look up and they're going to remember that in my father's house, even the lowest servants eat better than this. I'll go home and I'll ask my father to make me. When he left, he said, give me. But now that he's returning home, he says, make me. He turned around and his father saw him from afar off. This is the father heart of God. He's not standing there saying, when he gets to the gate, I'm going to make him take every step. I want to see him crawl. I want to see his fingernails splintered and shattered as he claws his way. No, that's not our heavenly father. The father saw him from a distance and went running out to meet him. Maybe prayer seems like something too overwhelming, too daunting for you. But I promise you this, based on the nature and the character of the Heavenly Father, if you will just turn in that direction, He will meet you. If you'll even begin our Father, He will be right there with you. And He'll take you the rest of the way and He will teach you how to pray and how to have communication and relationship with him. Jesus tore those ideas down. Hallelujah. Relationship, father to son, father to daughter. Relationship will take you in when law and personal failures try to keep you out. Some of you aren't praying because you don't think you're worthy. Some of you aren't praying because you think if you get really close to the Father, he's going to tell you things that you don't want to hear and you just, you just aren't ready to have more stuff dumped on you because you already have had your esteem beaten half to death. And so fear, the law, personal failures keep you out. Let me give you three examples of people that because of their relationship with the Father, the law, the fear, their personal failure had no hold over them. In the Old Testament, we're introduced to a man by the name of Zadok. Now, we don't know a lot about Zadok except that he was a Canaanite. Now, as a Canaanite, he would not have the right to actually come in to the temple proper. But this man fell in love with the presence of the Lord. I think Psalm 84, when it says, oh, I long and faint for the courts of the Lord. My flesh cries out for the living God. I think that Zadok may have had something to do with that psalm. If not, that is certainly something that he could have sung. This man can't go in, but he gets as close as he can, and he becomes a doorkeeper for the Lord. We later on find out in the book of Ezekiel that there is another priesthood. There's the Levitical priesthood and there's the Zadok priesthood. And the Zadok priesthood, those individuals who are worshipers, those individuals who are in this dynamic relationship with God, now the Father says, because you have set your heart to please me and not man, you can come into my presence anytime you want. Relationship will always take you where law and fear and Failures will try to keep you out. That's why he is our father. And then there's David. David's a mess in Psalm 51. He's committed adultery with Bathsheba. And if that's not bad enough, he has her husband killed and then tries to cover it up. 
And then, you know, Nathan the prophet comes and confronts David and says, there was a man who had one little ewe lamb. And then there was another man who had a lot of sheep, but he wanted that one little ewe lamb and he took it and he took it for his own and he killed its owner. David, what should be done to this man? And David said, that man should die. And Nathan says, you are that man. It gives me chills every time I repeat that story. You are that man. And David writes Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. He goes on into that psalm and he says, Oh God, if it were sacrifices that you wanted, I'd give them to you, but there isn't anything to cover the sin that I've committed. Because you see, the law made no provision to cleanse the sin of adultery nor the sin of murder. It was typically stoning. And that was the response. The law couldn't help David. And David cried out beyond the law, and he says, Oh God, this I know, that if I will humble my heart and be of a contrite spirit, you can't resist that. That's relationship. David knew that if he went to the Father and had a humble and a contrite heart, God would not leave him alone. Church, when we think that we have sinned so big that God cannot forgive us, that is nothing more than pride. You're saying that your sin is bigger than God's love, that your sin is bigger than God's willingness and ability to forgive and to cleanse you. It is a broken and a contrite heart. That's what the Father is looking for in our lives. And then, of course, my third example, the prodigal son. He knew that if he went to his father, his father would not turn him away his father would not let him go hungry and homeless our father who art in heaven God's above it all he's my heavenly father but he is above it all he is aware of and he is interested in you and in me God sees from a higher perspective, not just my present, but the past and the future. God knows how all the parts work, and sometimes I don't. Sometimes when Stuart and I go and buy something from Ikea and we have to put it together, I want to get it put together yesterday. And there's usually a bowl full of parts that I didn't use. And Stuart looks at it and starts the betting, when will it fall apart because you didn't put it together right? God puts things together right. He considers where they were, where they are, where they're going to be. He sees things that I cannot see. He knows things that I cannot know. There are times when I've gone to God and I have asked for particular things and he has said no. And to this day, he has still not given me the answer as to why he said no. But I trust him. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him him. Church, God is calling us to a higher level of faith, to a higher level of trusting him, a faith that doesn't always get what it asks for, but still believes that God is good and that God is holy and he withholds no good thing from those who walk according to his plans and his uprightness. This prayer captures that. Our Father who art in heaven, he sees from a higher perspective. He's not my earthly father. My earthly father was bound by his own broken humanity. He was bound by his own limitations and inabilities. But I have a heavenly father who has no brokenness. 
I have a heavenly father that has no limitations. I have a heavenly father that is all powerful and he is holy. And it reminds us that God holds all of creation in his hand. He's powerful. Isaiah chapter 40 says it like this. He is the God who measures out the expanses of the heavens by the span of his hand. I can't even measure out this sanctuary with a span of my hand without wearing completely out. We can't even measure our own universe with any level of accuracy except to say if we were to travel 186,000 miles per second, which is the speed of light, we would reach the end of our universe after some 20,000 light years. God says, oh, you want to know how far it is? Here, I, I don't need your sly rulers. I do it by the span of my hand. He holds it all in the palm of his hand. And guess what? He holds me there too. When everything shakes around me, he is the one who holds our hearts steady. He can do all things. He can do things, whatever they might be. He can change things. He can change me, and he can change you. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We don't use the word hallowed very often anymore. But I found it unusual that in the version that's my preferred version, the New American Standard Bible, my husband likes the NIV, um, the English Standard Bible, the New um, Living Translation, whatever translation, they all tend to stick with this word hallowed. And I think we see it and we know that hallowed means, <gasps> but we're not real sure exactly what it means. Hallowed means that which is holy separate, entirely other, that which is above and beyond all things. We sang it this morning, filled with wonder, awestruck wonder at just the mention of your name. His name is hallowed. The implication of this phrase in this prayer is that when we pray, we are to take just a moment and remember that his name is above all names, that his name is holy, separate, and entirely other, and it's been given to me and to you so that I can call upon the name of the Lord. His name is above every name. Buddha is not hallowed. Muhammad is not hallowed. Marty is not hallowed. His name is hallowed. His name is holy. Think about this. His name is El Roi. Hagar felt isolated and alone, having been kicked out of Abraham and Sarah's camp. She's pregnant. She has nowhere to go. She has no way to provide for herself. She has no way to survive. But God shows up and says, I am El Roi. I'm the God who sees you. Hallowed be his name. When you are alone and you've been rejected and kicked out and no one else seems to care about you or have concern for you, he is the God who sees you. Hallowed be his name. He is El Roi. For Sarah and for Abraham 
Abraham's close to 100 years old, and Sarah's right behind him. She is described in King James as being a woman upon whom the way of women has left, meaning that she is no longer able to become pregnant and bear a child. She's in her 90s. Of course not. But in their 90s, the Lord shows up. And he says to them, I am El Shaddai. With man, it's not possible. But with God, all things are possible. Hallowed be his name. Some of you are facing impossible situations. Don't be consumed with what you can't do. Be consumed with what he can do. He is El Shaddai. Hallowed be his name. Abraham gets the son of promise. And at the command of the Lord in Genesis 22, he takes his son, his only son Isaac, to Mount Moriah. And there, at the command of the Lord, is going to give Isaac to the Lord as a burnt offering. And just as he is about to make good on his commandment, the Lord stays his hand. And Abraham lifts up his eyes, and there he sees a ram in the thicket. And he says, Jehovah Jireh, you are the God who provides. Some of you... You are in the 12th hour, and tick-tock, tick-tock. It doesn't look like there's any hope. It doesn't look like there's any resolution nor solution. And what's being taken from you is more than you can bear. He is Jehovah Jireh. Blessed be his name. For those who are surrounded by the enemy, and you need a way of escape, it may look like you're surrounded. But Jehovah Nisi, the Lord God, is your banner. Hallowed be his name. He is your way of escape. It may look like you're surrounded, but you're surrounded by him. Hallowed be his name. For those who need a healing of their mind or their body, he is Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals me. Hallowed be his name. For those who need someone to care for them, watch over them, direct their steps, get them to the right water source, the right food source, protect them from the predators that are all around them. He is Jehovah Rohi, the Lord God, my shepherd. Hallowed be his name. For those who are facing an enemy that's bigger than you are, bigger than your checking account, bigger than your abilities, he is Jehovah Sabaoth. He is the Lord God of heaven's armies. For those who are being threatened with anxiety, with fear, and a thousand other things that would steal your peace, he is Jehovah Shalom, the Lord God, your peace. And for those of you who feel like you're all alone, and that there is no one who understands, and no one who is with you. He is Jehovah Shema, God with us. When you've fallen and you can't find your way up, he is Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord God, your righteousness. Now you may not be able to remember all of those names when you're praying. I know most of the time I can't. There's only one name you need. There's only one name that's been given among men whereby we must be saved. There's only one name that is above every name. And at the mention of his name, knees have to bow. Tongues have to confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. Hallowed be his name. Hallelujah.
it's in his name that the dead are raised and the sick are healed. The captives are set free, and when we call upon his name, we are saved. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This portion of the prayer, hallowed be thy name, it certainly sets the stage for the rest of the prayer. He's my heavenly father, but he also has a name. And by declaring, hallowed be thy name, we are in fact saying, Jesus, let your name be exalted and made famous in my life, my circumstance, the strategies of the enemy. This portion of the prayer specifically deals with headspace. Let me tell you what headspace is. Headspace is that conversation that goes on between your ears. Headspace is that conversation that you have with yourself and it is almost never positive. That headspace will have you try, convict, and execute someone without even asking them why they did something. Headspace will convince you that there's no way that you can do it, you shouldn't even try, give up now before you even start. Headspace will convince you that the minute you step into that church, people are gonna look at you and they're judging you. Honey, if you walk in here and someone looks at you, it's because you're beautiful and they see the glory of God on your face not because you're being judged. Headspace will tell you that nothing good will ever happen to you. Headspace tells you that your life is pointless and worthless. And the hallowed be thy name deals with that headspace. It washes over your brain with the truth of God's word and sets your thinking straight and right. Do not let your headspace direct your steps. Let the hallowed be thy name direct your steps. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. If someone's acting up, instead of having a headspace conversation, go to them and ask them about it. If someone's acting up and you know they're really acting up and being mean to you, have a friend pray with you. Do not get caught in your headspace. Headspace is dangerous. And especially in this season of isolation that we have experienced, we've had a lot of headspace time. And it shows. People are disintegrating. Christians are seemingly disintegrating because they've been listening to the conversation between their ears. Get out of your headspace. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him. And he is altogether wonderful and marvelous. Every battle that we face is typically won or lost in headspace. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5 says it like this. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are mighty through God. To do what? Tear down your brothers? No. They're mighty through God to the tearing down of strongholds, the casting down of vain imaginations and every high thought that would exalt itself against the knowledge of God. It's headspace, folks. And we have got to let Jesus conquer our headspace or at least start the process. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. In the Greek, Erkomai, the word we translate come, 
It's used in both the present and the imperfect tenses. What that means is this. You could literally read that passage, let your kingdom come and let it keep on coming. Because, you see, the kingdom of God doesn't just come once like a wave and then never comes again. The kingdom of God keeps coming and washing over us. And I love the idea of thinking about the kingdom of God coming like a wave. Because if you've ever gone to a beach and you see the waves, they just keep coming and coming and they don't stop. It doesn't matter who the president is. They don't stop. It doesn't matter who stays and who goes. They keep coming. It doesn't matter who's in power and who's in this and who's in that. They keep coming and they change the topography. They change the identity of the coast. People do not build houses on the beach. Why? Because if they do, the, the shoreline's going to change and they're going to get washed away because the kingdom of God is washing over us and it's changing us. It's changing the way we think. To say... I want the kingdom of God to come and keep on coming. Like the waves of the ocean just keep on coming and never stop. And they carve out and re-identify the coastline. They pick up debris that was left on the beach. And they bring in a new beach every day and it just doesn't stop. Let your kingdom come and let it keep on coming. When we speak of the kingdom of God, it is a direct reference to the government of God, his lordship, his economy, and his culture. When we say, let your kingdom come, we are simply saying, Jesus, I submit my life to your government. And yes, I use the S word. We've emphasized horizontal submission. Just about every sermon I've ever heard on submission has been horizontal. Some of them have been good. Some of them have made me edgy. Some of them have made me spastic but every sermon I've heard on submission it's horizontal wives to your husband children to your parents employees to your employers it's always horizontal submission should start vertical because until you've submitted to him and to his kingdom, you do not have the grace to walk out horizontal submission. Church, do you hear me? We are trying to force a horizontal submission without there having never been a vertical submission. When you submit yourself to the kingdom of God, this will be no problem. We'll all be submitting to each other because his kingdom has come. But we focus on this. I'm not saying we shouldn't teach horizontal submission. We need to. But I will say that the more we walk in the Lord, the more we grow in the Lord, there must be that moment where we say, let your kingdom come. Not my kingdom. Not their kingdom. Not some imaginary kingdom. Let your kingdom come. And let it keep on coming into my life and into my heart until all the kingdoms of my life belong to you, Jesus. When the kingdom of God is at work in our lives, then submission's not gonna be an issue. Again, we'll just all be submitting to each other. My first experience of seeing another kingdom was when I went to Bolivia. I was about 24 years old, my first trip outside of the country, and here's some of the things I noticed. The minute I stepped off the plane, there was a different language. 
when the kingdom of God comes to your life, you'll speak a different language. And I'm not just talking about your prayer language, even though that is certainly a part of it. When the kingdom of God comes to your life, you'll speak with echoes of faith, love, and compassion. You won't speak out of anger. You won't speak out of your own insecurities. You'll speak out of love and compassion, and that being his love and compassion at that. You'll speak a different language. Christians ought to speak differently than the world. I noticed immediately that there were different rules and a different government. His government reigns in and through our lives. There was different dress. The people of Bolivia wore different colors, different styles than we do here in North America. When you are a part of the kingdom of God, you wear different clothes. And the clothes that you'll wear, you'll be empowered and clothed with power from on high. Because God clothes his kids with power. There's going to be different food. You're not going to be eating the same food as everyone else. You're going to drink living waters and you're going to feast on his word. Let your kingdom come and let it keep on coming. And then he says, thy will be done. The kingdom coming is to me. His will being done is through me. What is God's will for my life? That is probably the number one question that I hear have BSM students and others ask me over the years. What is God's will for my life? And my response is simply this, that's the wrong question. Here's the right question. What is God's will, emphasis on God, and how do I get my life in it? That's the right question. And here's what the will of God is. You want to know what the will of God is for your life? Here it is. That none should perish, but that all should come to faith in Jesus. It is the will of God that you keep his commandments. It is his will that you be his witnesses. It is his will that you always give thanks. It is his will that you be sanctified. It is his will that you do what is good. It is his will for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it is his will for you to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. On earth as it is in heaven, the kingdom or the government and will of the Father is the invasion of heaven on earth. The kingdom of God is at work in us. His will is being done through us. I know of no better way to end this message this morning than to ask you to stand with me and let's pray the Lord's Prayer together.